When I was like six, seven, eight, who knows how long, 14, 15, whatever, I knew when I grew up, I wanted to live in New York City. I was going to be a businessman. I was going to work on Wall Street. I didn't know what a businessman was. I just knew that he wore suits and did important things. I was attracted to the city for several reasons as a, as a young kid. I loved the idea of not having to have a car, just being able to walk everywhere, take a subway. And I knew that New York City had some of the best food, some of the best, well, now I know it has some of the best coffee and other things. And that appealed to me. I even liked that the city was busy. Oddly enough, because the streets were all, are always packed, you know, lights are always going on, uh, restaurants are always open, all kinds of things are always happening, that strangely gave me a sense of comfort. Just thinking about New York City gave me a lot of joy. Scripture is not against cities. In fact, when Scripture speaks about this coming new world that God is going to make, it often is referred to as a city. Let's look at this city in our text today. Really quick, I want to give you uh, the scriptural context of our text. After the fall of the world, the entirety of scripture is moving towards the new creation. We have fallen, and God is working through Abraham, through Israel, through everyone else, through Jesus eventually, to bring about this new world. And in our text, we are going to see the most explicit Old Testament teaching about this coming new creation, this coming new world. Before we begin, though, there is something I have to address with this text. There are two positions. Not everybody thinks this is about the new creation. They're wrong, but they're not everybody thinks so. The first position is that this is talking about the millennium. If you don't know what the millennium is, there's Revelation 20, there's this thousand year period where Jesus is going to come, he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years with believers and unbelievers at the same time. This isn't the eternity, this is just Jesus' physical reign on the earth for a thousand years. Satan will be, uh, what does it say, chained? Uh, he will be chained and he will no longer be able to deceive the nations and believers will reign with him in new bodies. A very strange time. Some people say that that's what's take, talking about here. This isn't the new creation. The other position, the right position, is that this is referring to the new creation. It's about eternity. It's about our final destination. How can we know whether this is about eternity or about the millennium? How can we decide that? I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation, and I'm going to ask you to actually to keep a bookmark or something there, because we're going to go there a few times. Turn to Revelation 20. 
give you about 10 seconds. Should be, you know, it's almost the last chapter, so shouldn't be too hard to find. If you see Revelation 20, this is the millennial period. This is the millennium that I was talking about. This is not eternity. I don't have a specific text for you to look at. I just want you to see Revelation 20 is the millennium. It's not eternity. Everyone agrees on that. But Revelation 21 is the very next chapter, obviously, and everyone agrees that that is talking about eternity. That is talking about the new world. That is talking about the new creation. You guys understand that so far? 20 is the millennium, 21 is eternity. We got, we got, we good on that? So which chapter in Isaiah 65 is Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about Revelation 20, the millennium, or is he talking about Revelation 21, eternity? Look at how Revelation 21 on the new creation begins in verse 1. 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You might look at that and you might think, why is that important? Why does it matter that he's saying the new heavens and the new earth and the former things have passed away? Well, go back to our text in Isaiah 65 and look at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, for the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. You see the connection there? You see the similarity between Isaiah 65, 17 and Revelation 21, 1? They're both talking about the new heavens and the new earth. They're both talking about eternity. John is doing what we call in scripture echoing scripture. He's thinking about a previous scripture, and he is giving more specific details about what the previous scripture had been saying. John has more revelation than Isaiah, and so he is commentating and giving clarity to what Isaiah said in 65. Does that make sense? And because John, and because we know John is writing about eternity in Revelation 21, and he's echoing Isaiah 65. That means John believed that Isaiah was writing about the new creation and not the millennium. Isaiah 65, 17, to the rest of our text, 25, is about the eternal restoration of the world, not the millennium period. As I said, keep your finger on 21 because we will come back a couple times. Let's get to our text. There is a phrase in verse 17. It says, the new heavens and the new earth. We talked about how in Revelation 21, John is echoing Isaiah 65 when John says the new heavens and the new earth, but Isaiah himself is echoing Genesis 1. He's going back to the original creation. When God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. 
the beginning, middle, and end of Scripture is about creation and the renewal of the universe. I have a question. To what end will God create the world? The new world. To what end will God create the new world? What's his purpose in designing the new world? Answer, God is going to design the new world to be a joy. He's going to design the new world to be joyful. This is clearly seen in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. And I know immediately you guys see that. Some of you are thinking it says Jerusalem. It doesn't say the new creation. And if you think that, I'm just saying you don't understand Isaiah. And we don't have time to to go through the entire book of Isaiah, but Jerusalem is known as the center of the earth. And in Isaiah, Isaiah is always saying he's going to recreate Jerusalem first and then the entire world after that. And because Jerusalem is the capital of the entire world in his mind, in Isaiah's mind, that means when he says Jerusalem, he really means the entire world. It also says, strangely enough, that even God is going to rejoice in the new creation. And we, that means he's going to rejoice in us. Look at verse 19. He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Think back to Genesis 1 after the creation of the world. God saw everything that he created, and what did he say about it? It was good. In the new world, he's going to recreate the world and be glad in it. The new world is going to give him joy, just as the original creation did. It's going to be good. Israel and the nations, for that matter, they've been characterized by rebellion. But what we are seeing in our text is that God is going to come to this world. He's going to fix this world. He's going to fix his people. And he's going to rejoice in them. And before you get into your mind that you're just so special and so much to love about you, we aren't. We are there is human worth. Don't get me wrong there. But the reason he's going to have so much joy in us is because we will be united to his son. And we will be perfect. And everything he will see about us, because we are united to Jesus, he sees Jesus, and everything we've ever done has been perfect. And we won't only have a perfect record, we will actually be perfect. And God rejoices in holiness and goodness and perfection. And you will be that. 
just how great will this new creation be? How great will the coming new world be? It's going to be so great that all the suffering, the sickness, the disease, everything we suffer in this present world won't even be a memory. We won't want to reflect on it. It won't be worth remembering when we're in the new creation. Where do I see that? Look at the words in verse 17. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Is he saying that we won't have any memory of the current world we're living in? Are we going to forget all about our friends, all about our joy, all about our pain and experiences in this world? Is that what he's saying? No. As a matter of fact, one of the points of the new creation is that we are going to worship Jesus eternally precisely for overcoming all the suffering, all the sickness, all the disease that we experienced in this world. So what does he mean that the former things will not be remembered? Here's what I think he's saying. The greatness of the new creation will be such that any of the pain experienced in this current world will be so surpassed by the joy that we will have in the new creation that all of our suffering in this world isn't even going to matter anymore. The joy of the new world will be so great that it won't matter the things that we've experienced, the suffering that you're going through now. It's kind of like the greatness of the new creation is going to outdo this great suffering that we experience today. This is kind of like recently when, when, when Margie was going through a pregnancy. Some of you all know she was having a hard time with that. She had cholestasis. She had itchiness. She had all kinds of things. And all the women here would always tell her, when you have that baby, you're going to completely forget about all the things you were suffering. All the joy of holding that newborn baby is going to make you forget about how painful that nine months of birth was, nine months of pregnancy was. That's what Isaiah is saying here. Paul was saying something very similar, and he's also, he's thinking about the new creation when he says this. He says, he does not consider the suffering of this present time as worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. The new creation is going to be so joyous, so wonderful Think about the greatest suffering that you can imagine someone has to go through today. It's not even going to compare to what we're going to experience in joy in the new creation. Everything we buy is designed for a purpose. What do I mean by that? I was just recently reading that the buttons on men's collars, that they put them there because 
on a windy day, the collars would flap up and down. And so the buttons are designed to hold the collar down. Some of you guys know I like cooking. I have two kinds of knives. There's Eastern knives and there's Western knives. The Eastern knives are, you know, more Japanese kind of knives, and they are lighter and they're sharper, and they're good for cutting vegetables quickly. They're good for cutting small things quickly. The Western knives, they're not as sharp, but they're heavier, and they're better for breaking apart larger animals and things like that. They both have their purpose. Some of you who can't understand the the knife illustration. <laughs> the Honda lawnmower has an engine and a blade system, and they are designed to be so powerful and so great that it's supposed to make mulching more efficient. If that makes sense, it's designed to mulch better. And the point is, is that people create and design things for a purpose. And to the end that is successful in bringing about that purpose, uh, to the end that it brings about that purpose that it was designed to be, that is the end to which we determine if it's successful or not, if that makes sense. The more successful something is in achieving its purpose, the better that thing is that we, uh, sorry, I'm having a mental block on that. The better something, when someone creates something and, and is doing what it's designed to do, that's how we determine if that tool is successful or not. We'll meditate on this. God is the ultimate designer. He is the ultimate inventor. He is the ultimate creator, and he always is successful in what he's going to do in everything he creates. And he says that the new creation, he is going to design it to be joyful. That means every one of us who are there will experience joy because God is successful in all that he does. Someone might say, I want to say before I get there, joy is what all of us, without exception, are after. All of us want to have joy. All of us want to have happiness. Everything we do in life is because we believe it's going to bring us joy either instantly or in the future. Someone might hear that and say, I don't think so. I hate my work and I go every single day. Well, no matter how much you hate going to work, you go to work because you understand that it's more joyful to go to work, no matter how much you hate it, that's more joyful experience than not being able to pay your bills and living on the street. You're still doing what makes you most happy, what makes you most joyful. And because God will create the new world to be joyous, everyone there will be full of joy. And this joy, it's going to be a different kind and quality. What do I mean by that? It's not going to be fleeting. It's not going to be shallow. 
For instance, you, some of us, like the new technology, we, we go buy a new iPhone, and, and we're happy and joyous in that for a couple days, and then it starts getting old, and we want the next new thing. And even when we have it, the joy is not even that great. It's like a superficial joy. It's not going to be like that. The new creation will not be like that. The joy that we will experience will be a deep and satisfying and robust joy. It's a joy that will come from knowing that everything is right in the world. Everything is okay. The only thing I can compare it to is the joy that we experience at conversion. The full, deep, rich joy that we experience at conversion is just a tiny taste of what every day in eternity will be like. So we've seen that God is going to create the new world to be joyous, but why? Why will it be a joy? Let's go on in our text. That's what the rest of our text is about. The first reason that the new creation will be a joy is because there will be no more suffering or death. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This is talking about specifically Israel supposed to go into Babylon and they would have experienced suffering, they would have experienced beating, they would have experienced all kinds of horrific things. But he is saying here, Isaiah is saying here, that even those things, even though those things bring weeping and crying, neither the cause of the weeping or the weeping itself will be experienced in the new world. He goes on to address death beginning in verse 20. Verse 20 says, No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now when we read this, I admit, on the surface, it does sound like he's simply saying that life is going to be extended, but not the elimination of death altogether. But I don't think he's saying that. We have to remember that Isaiah is poetic. He uses poetry, and he often uses poetic language to describe some greater reality. He uses things that we all experience to describe something we have never experienced, if that makes sense. And just so you guys know, and you don't leave here thinking that Isaiah believes that there will be death in the new creation, I'm going to let you know in chapter 25, he says this, that God will swallow up death forever. Isaiah did not believe that there will be death in the future. His point is this, people's lives will not be cut short like they are now. When you think about 
It says the young man shall die 100 years old. The point isn't about death. The point is, if someone were to die at 100 years old, that person would be considered a young man. Whereas today, someone dies at 20, that person died at a young man. He's saying in the new creation, if someone died at 100, that person would be considered a young man. That's how long life's going to be. That's the point. It's not focusing on death. The point is, is that even at 100 years old, that is going to be a young life. Everyone will have a full life. Everyone will live a long time. This is Isaiah using poetic language to say that people will live forever. You've heard me talk this morning and in other sermons about how Scripture is progressive. It's called progressive revelation. And what that means is that Scripture starts off saying something very obscure, something we don't really understand, and then it gets clearer and clearer and clearer as time goes on. That's just the nature of Scripture. This is an example of that. What do I mean? Go back to uh, Revelation 21. When Isaiah says that a person living to be 100 years old will be considered a young man. That's his way of speaking of eternal life. I showed you already that Revelation 21 and Isaiah 65 are speaking about the new creation, the new world. And I said that Revelation 21 is commentary and clarification of Isaiah 65. They're both talking about the same thing. Well, I want you to see another comparison First, I hope you got your fingers on Isaiah. Look at verse 19 in Isaiah. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Now turn to Revelation 21. The end of verse 4, it says similarly, Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. You see how that's very similar. He's almost using the exact same language, the same words. And then in Isaiah 65, verse 20, he argues for a long life, what I'm saying, eternal life. Now back in Revelation 21, verse 4, John commentating on Isaiah 65 says, death shall be no more. John is looking at what Isaiah said in verse 20, and he is interpreting that as death will be done with. John, in Revelation, is giving greater clarification to what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is obscure, but John is bringing clarity. Death shall be no more. And so the point is rejoice in the new creation because there will no longer be death. Rejoice in the new creation because there will no longer be death. How do you describe eternity? How do you count the stars? I did some research and some math, and I found out 
that the closest star to us is 25 trillion miles away. 25 trillion miles. As far as I know, the fastest spaceship, spacecraft, has been created by NASA, and it's called the New Horizon, and that can travel just over 36,000 miles an hour. If we had that spacecraft, and we all got inside the New Horizon, and we all decided we're going to venture out to this new star, to this closest star, that's seven, or 25 trillion miles away, if we did that, it would take us 78,000 years to reach that star. That's the closest. 78,000 years. That's one star. Now imagine that after we travel to that star 78,000 years, we travel back to the earth 78,000 years, and we decide we're going to go off to the next star further away, 100,000 years. We head off to that star. We travel back to the earth 100,000 years. And imagine we keep doing that until that we have reached the estimated, and all the, all the stars, the estimated 100 billion trillion stars in the universe. How long would that take? It's almost impossible, it's impossible for me to determine how long that would take. Yet, because eternity is forever, we could travel to every single star in the universe, and we would still be no closer to finishing our eternal life with God in the new creation than if we were there just a second. There is no end. Eternal life is just that. It's eternal. It's forever. Its length is unfathomable. Everyone here has dealt with death at one point or another. I've actually, just last week, lost another friend. And everyone here has experienced at some point the loss of a friend or family member. And in the back of our minds, we all know that we will have to experience that ourselves. But in the new creation, a hundred billion trillion years will go by, and you will not experience death in any form. You will not, even for a second, have a thought or fear of death pass through your mind. Death will be no more because Jesus has defeated it. So the first reason that we will have a deep joy in the new creation is because there will be no more suffering and no more death. 
What other reason does Isaiah give us to rejoice in the new creation? Rejoice in the new creation because there will be fruitful work. Look at verses 21 to 23. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. In the ancient Near East, people would often fear that they would build a house or do something, and then an enemy would just come along and just take everything they did, take every, all the work they did, whether it was planting crops, whatever. There was always a fear that someone else would come and take it. And that happened to Israel often. They would build houses. They would, they would plant, they would do vineyards. They would plant fruit vegetables, all kinds of things, and then Assyria, Babylon, whoever would come along and they would either steal what they've done or they would, they would take Israel away altogether. But he's, Isaiah's saying the new earth's not going to be like this. The new creation is not going to be like this. People will build houses in the new creation and they'll live in it. People will plant and garden, and get to enjoy, literally, the fruit of their labor. Verse 23, as it says, it says, they shall not labor in vain. It means they will have fruitful work. I know that many of us think work is a result of the fall. It's not. In Genesis 2, after God had created Adam... He put Adam in the garden to work the garden and keep it. And God in the new creation is going to return us to that original state. We will work in the new creation. And I know that for many of you and many of us, that sounds like a bummer. (laughs) Many of us were hoping eternity was about playing Fortnite forever or watching Netflix. As great as that sounds to some, that's not entirely what we'll do. You're going to work. But think about this for a second. We said God always is successful in his purposes. If God creates this new world to be joyful, wouldn't that mean that some of the displeasure that some of you experience at work doesn't that mean in the new creation that'll all be completely gone? If God designed the new creation to be a joy, then that means work in the new creation will be joyful. You're no longer going to have to deal with your manager nagging at you every five minutes to get back to work, to quit talking. You're no longer going to have to constantly look at the clock to hope your shift is ended or going to an end. You're no longer going to have to experience the physical pain that you experience at work because you will have a perfect body. You're going to have, in every one of your hearts, there's going to be a strong desire to complete a task, whether it's You want to build a building, 
you want to cook a great meal, something else, and you are going to plan, prepare, and work to accomplish that task, and you will accomplish it. I said that you're not going to have to deal with a nagging manager or have to watch the clock, but the truth is you're going to love work so much that you're not going to need it. You're not going to need someone to breathe down your neck and watch over you because you're going to love what you're doing. Fruitful work will be joyful and satisfying. Rejoice in the new creation because we will have fruitful work. Last point, rejoice in the new creation because we will have peace. For the sake of time, I have to skip down to verse 25. It says, the wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So in the Garden of Eden, this is just a return to the Garden of Eden. All the animals lived in peace with one another. They didn't kill other animals. Everyone in the Garden of Eden was vegans. Listen to what Genesis 1 says. And behold, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So he's given vegetables and fruit in the original creation. Notice what's not on the menu. Animal flesh. In God's original creation, he didn't design it to have death, and so humans and animals ate fruits and vegetables. And what I believe we are seeing in our text is a restoration of the Garden of Eden. Death isn't going to be in the new creation, and so I don't think there will be the killing of animals, which for me is a bummer because I stopped eating meat because it was making me sick, and I was hoping, you know, maybe in the new creation. Then I start looking at this text, and uh, yeah. <laughs> the wolf and the lamb will graze together. They're no longer going to be enemies. The lion, which is the, the king of the carnivores, he won't be attacking anyone else. He'll be loving and peaceful. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to walk up to a lion or a bear or a wolf or something else and just pet it like it's, like it's a dog? But there's going to be peace peace between humans, peace between animals. I have to say, there is one thing about our present world that will not change in the new world. Look at the third clause in verse 25. And dust shall be the serpent's food. What does that mean? I've told you this whole sermon that 
Isaiah is echoing Genesis, and John in Revelation is echoing Isaiah. Isaiah is echoing Genesis 3.14 here when God tells the serpent, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Dust as the serpent's food symbolizes the serpent's curse. What Isaiah is saying here is that everyone and everything will be restored to its original order, but the serpent will still be cursed in the new world. He's not making a statement about whether snakes will be eating dirt or not. He's not talking about snakes in general. He's talking about Satan. As I said, progressive revelation. Right now it's the serpent. We learn later it's Satan. He's referring to Satan who had possessed the serpent in the garden. And just as Isaiah, he's talking about the judgment of the serpent in the new creation, which is symbolized by him eating dust. John in Revelation also teaches that that's what's going to happen to Satan, the serpent, in eternity. Just listen to what it says. It says, And the devil, which was just referred to as the serpent in Revelation, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire, and saw for where the beast and false prophet were, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what Isaiah means when he says dust will be the serpent's food in the new creation. He's going to be cursed. Isaiah at the time didn't know exactly what that curse would look like. John did, and John clarified it. He just knew that the serpent was going to continue with that curse. He's going to stay cursed in the new world. With the eradication of sin, with the eradication of Satan, there will be no evil, no harm to anyone in this new world. Creation will live in peace and harmony, but Satan will be cursed. Rejoice in the new creation because we will have peace. I know I'm going to sound like Miss Universe for a second, but imagine a world without war. Imagine life without ever having conflict with a coworker, with another Christian. In the new creation, we will all have perfect hearts and we will all live with one another peacefully. If you're here today and you have not put your trust in Jesus, my question to you is why not? Why not? This world is nothing in comparison to what God promises to bring. Why are you so satisfied with a world filled with pain and evil when God promises to get rid of it all in the world that's to come? 
And I guess that that's where the problem lies. Because if God is going to wipe out all evil in the world to renew it, then that must mean that he will also wipe out unredeemed humanity. So if you have not put your trust in Jesus who purchased this new world with his blood, then you are still a part of the old creation. Clinging to sins is clinging to the fallen creation. If you turn to Jesus, if you turn to the Son of God, he will forgive you. He will wash you clean. He will make you a new creature so that you will be in a new creation. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I plead with you this morning, repent and believe the gospel. I've got to visit New York City several times since I've been here. And I have to confess that, yeah, I no longer, I don't want to be a businessman anymore. There are still some things I, I wanted to do as a kid. I'm still sort of attracted to the city in many ways. And when I went, it was, for me, it was very exciting. Uh, going to Central Park, got, looking at all the skyscrapers, checking out coffee shops, restaurants, finding great food, all that was a lot of fun. But as great as New York City is, it's far from perfect. In some parts, there's a lot of crime. Many places are gross and decaying. And because God has made me a new creation, my hope is in the new world. I'm looking forward to the perfect city that is to come. And I've been saying eternity this whole time because many of us, we say the word heaven. This isn't controversial. All scholars agree heaven is a temporary intermediate state. If you pay attention to scripture, every time before Jesus returns, the location we go to is heaven. That's before Jesus returns. After Jesus returns, it's always the new world. It's heaven and earth united. The physical world is where we'll be. We will live here on a sanctified world, not up in the clouds somewhere. And in God's original creation, he wanted us to invent. He wanted us to create. He wanted us to build cities. He wanted us to explore his world in different ways. And in the new creation, the renewed world... There's going to be a lot of similarities with the current creation, except that everything will be made perfect. Everything will be made holy. The new creation will be so perfect that we're going to make these giant, massive cities like New York City look like a rundown town in Indiana. And if you're from Indiana, please don't send me that email telling me how great Indiana is this week. We're going to have perfect chefs who create food combinations we've never imagined. They're going to make 
Gordon Ramsay and Thomas Keller's best dish tastes like a bowl of cereal. And the point is, everything you see today and love today in this world around you, everything that is a good gift of God will be sanctified and it will be in the new world and our pleasure in it will be magnified because it will be perfect. But the greatest and most important gift that we will have in the new creation is God himself. In eternity, we are going to have the closest fellowship with God. And we are going to have a much fuller understanding and an ever-increasing understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And when we see him, he is going to be in such radiating, glorious light that we will want to fall down and worship him. And that will be the most joyous thing you've ever experienced in your life. Who needs Times Square when you have that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful, joyous new world. We pray just as Paul told us to do, to set our minds on the future things and not on the present world as it is. And we pray that you would give us grace to do that this week and to help us keep our hope on eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.